Well, good morning, everybody. I trust you all had a happy Thanksgiving. Uh, my family uh, from camp on Thanksgiving, so uh, we're, we're all uh, uh, back together again. And uh, Claire is especially happy that she's back from camp because she's going to BTS concert tonight. And that's, that's all we've been hearing for the last, uh, you know, couple months. And so after, I'll hear next month, but... Uh, You're not supposed to talk from the <laughs> congregation. Okay. This is a one-way thing, right? We, so, well, uh, myself and Am and uh, Adam and Ed, we were in uh, Texas last week for um, the yearly uh, ETS, which was a, a wonderful time of learning and, and fellowshipping and, and getting to network with the uh, guys. But I'll I tell you, the thing that, that really shocked me the most was how many Asians there are in Texas. Uh, I, I had no idea. I, I, I mean, I knew Julie was from, from Texas, but I always had this impression like she's the only one out there, you know, that's <laughs> Korean. And but, you, know, you go out there, it's like, oh my gosh, there's like tons of Korean places and, and Japanese places. And uh, I mean, you could eat, there's like 10 ramen places, you know, where we were. We ate a Korean place all Korean-owned and Korean waitresses and everything. It was like, wow, this is a real Korean place here. It's kind of crazy, you know? Um, and, but, uh, but all that to say is we, were, uh, we had dinner at, uh, at uh, Christine, our former member Christine's house and her husband Jesse, and uh, we also saw Connie, who I only see out of state, you know? So <laughs> saw Connie there with Cousin Jen and, and Andy and Jane, who are former members here as well. And that happens to be about a half mile from where Dan and Mimi's uh, new place will be. And so I got to see Dan and Mimi's new uh, neighborhood. Very nice neighborhood, by the way, Dan and Mimi. That's a very, very nice area. And I know you'll be very happy uh, out there. But it's also good to be back and uh, good, glad to be back in the pulpit and to share with you guys. Uh, it is our final message in our Family Focus Month that deals with the marks of a, of a healthy church. And so... Uh, this morning, I want to uh, talk about uh, true biblical conversion and regeneration and, uh, and why that is such an important mark of a, of a healthy church. But, you know, today's uh, topic of true biblical conversion, uh, it is so important because it's so misunderstood or misrepresented by many churches. Now, you might ask yourself, why is, why is that the case? Well, I would say mainly because of a deficiency in the presentation of the gospel message itself. You know, many of us, for example, we grew up in churches where becoming a Christian uh, was no more than asserting uh, or assenting to uh, a series of biblical facts. You know, do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? Yes, I do. Check. Uh, do you believe that he died for your sins? Yes, I do. Okay, check. Uh, do you believe that he rose from the dead? Yeah, I do believe he rose from the dead. Okay, check. Uh, do you want to pray this prayer of salvation? Yeah, I guess I could pray this prayer of salvation. Okay, repeat after me. Check. Um, well, congratulations, you're a Christian. Right? That's, that's uh, how many of us grew up. And, and you know, many, many of us have had similar experiences like that. And, you know, many of these same people, tragically, then go on to live the rest of their lives totally unchanged, almost indistinguishable uh, from their pre-profession of faith. They have no desire to go to church, uh, no desire to read the scriptures, or to turn away from the me-centered, sinful lifestyle uh, to one that is centered in the worship of Christ. Nothing has really changed. In fact, nothing has changed in their life other than the fact that they mimicked the prayer of someone who supposedly led them to faith in Christ. Well, can I submit to you this morning that that is not a biblical picture of conversion slash regeneration? You know, the Bible paints a very different picture of what happens to a person who is saved by Christ. And the best word that I can use to describe it would be transformation. 
Do you remember Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus in John chapter 3? You know, if you recall, Nicodemus was a Pharisee uh, and, and a leading one by that. He was a member of the Sanhedrin who wanted to speak with Jesus in private. So as not to be seen, he went to, to Jesus at nighttime. And who can forget the words that Jesus challenged Nicodemus with on that fateful night? He said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, including you, Nicodemus, you cannot see the kingdom of God. In other words, you can't enter God's kingdom just as you are. A transformation of life that only God can provide in his son is necessary. And it's so life-changing that it's likened to a new birth, which is exactly what conversion, regeneration, is all about. So what we're going to do over the next hour is to look specifically at passages that address what biblical conversion slash regeneration entails and how that sets a new believer on the path of lifelong sanctification. And I think it's probably self-evident, but the reason we focus on this aspect as a mark of a healthy church is because, uh, you know, think about it. What will happen if the unconverted are allowed into the membership of the church? I'm not saying into the doors of the church. I'm saying into the membership of the church. What if unbelievers are your Sunday school teachers uh, for your kids? What if the unbelievers are the ones who are going on missions trips or even finding their way into the leadership of the church, serving as elders and deacons at IBC. This is why, as a leadership, we do our due diligence to interview each of our prospective members to determine, as best we can, humanly speaking, to determine whether true conversion has taken place. It is our task to make sure that the membership is a fully redeemed membership, and that, you know, the, the, the great thing about this process is that there have been a handful of professing believers that have gone through the process of membership to find out in the process of the class itself that they really weren't Christians after all. They really didn't know the Lord Jesus. Yeah, they were churched and they knew a lot of Christian truths, but had never experienced genuine conversion and a real relationship with Jesus Christ himself. So they knew about Jesus, but they didn't know Jesus. And as a result, they never had experienced the real life change that the scripture speaks about. The membership class then became the occasion whereby these prospective members came into a saving and a life-transforming relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, and then subsequently became a member of our church. Well, you know, before I explain the nature of uh, conversion regeneration, I want to make sure that we have a proper overview of salvation. So, you know, did you know that salvation has a past, present, and future aspect to it? These are commonly referred to as justification, that's when you got saved in the past, Sanctification, that's salvation working in the present, and glorification, which is the completion of your salvation in the future. You know, most Christians, when thinking, uh, when they think of salvation, they're only thinking of the past aspect of their salvation when they repented of their sins and placed their faith in Jesus Christ. Well, that's the, the past aspect of uh, justification. You have it there on the screen there, but Paul highlights this past aspect of salvation in Titus 3, verse 5, which we will look at uh, this morning. Notice what Paul says there. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Notice that. He saved us. In the past, he saved us. Of course, that, that is such an important part of your salvation story because it's the moment that you passed over from death to life. 
But you know what? That's only the beginning of the story. That's not the end of the story. And that brings us to part two, salvation uh, present. There's a present aspect to your salvation uh, that we all know of as sanctification. Sanctification is the process that God uses through his Holy Spirit to make you holier. Surprise, surprise. He puts his Holy Spirit in us to make us holier. Paul speaks of this present aspect in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us, notice the wording, to us who are being saved, present tense, it is the power of God. So God has saved us in the past. He's in the process of saving us in the present. But there's part three. There's also a future aspect to your salvation known as glorification when you will forever be free from sin, living in your resurrected body on a new heaven and a new earth. Paul refers to this uh, future aspect in Romans chapter 5, verse 9. Take a look on the screen there. Since therefore we have now been justified, there's the past aspect, by his blood, by his death, much more shall we be saved by from the wrath of God. Notice the future tense that's being used there. So in other words, oh, okay, so I'm going to move to this. All right. Do I not sound good or something? Is it? Oh, okay, all right, all right. Oh, yeah. Okay, let me take this out then. Thank you very much. Okay. So notice the future aspect there. Shall we be saved? So in other words, we're saved from the Father's wrath on Judgment Day because of our union with the Lord Jesus Christ. So salvation, past, present, and future. Well, for the, for the rest of our time today, we'll be looking at the relationship between salvation past, when you got saved, and salvation present. Or to put it another way, what does God do to a person when he saves him? When a sinner is forgiven of his sin, why does his life change so drastically? These are the questions that conversion slash regeneration answers. So before we get to the scripture, uh, let me give you a definition of regeneration that will help orient you to the topic that we're going to talk about this morning and one that is relevant to all the passages that we're going to hopscotch through this morning. The the great theologian J.I. Packer defines regeneration I know this is a little bit small on here, but, uh, but hopefully you can follow along. He defines regeneration as an inner recreating of fallen human nature by the gracious sovereign action of the Holy Spirit. So it's a recreating. It's a new birth, like what Jesus was talking about with Nicodemus. He goes on to say, a radical and complete transformation wrought in the soul by God the Holy Spirit, by virtue of which we become new men. Again, new birth, right? New creation. No longer conformed to this world, but in knowledge and holiness of the truth, created after the image of God. This is exactly what Jesus was talking about, what it's like to be born again. So this transformation or new birth in Christ is what's responsible for changing the sinner's former inclination towards sin, selfishness, godlessness, and rebellion, and instead flips him around towards repentance, trust, and love towards God in his word. Let me, let me just take a moment um, and let's, uh, let's uh, pray, and uh, we'll get started here this morning. Heavenly Father, we... Um, Take a moment to pray and ask that you would lead us here as we talk about this important uh, topic of uh, biblical conversion and and regeneration. Help us, Lord, to focus and to concentrate and to give praise to you as we rethink about what it was like to be saved and born again. We give you thanks for it in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning we're going to take a look at three aspects. We're going to talk about from death to life. 
Uh, number two, we're going to talk about uh, God's grace in life. And then three, we're going to make some concluding statements. So with that said, let's uh, talk about our first point from death to life. If you could turn in your Bibles with me to Ephesians chapter 2. Uh, we're going to look here. And, and you know, uh, some things we're going to go through quickly. Uh, we can't exposit everything, uh, you know, verse by verse. But some things we will stop and look at, at the highlight, uh, at, at the details. Ephesians 2, 1 to 10. The Apostle Paul writes, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God." not a result of work so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That was a mouthful, right? Have you ever watched a sales presentation that had a wow factor, you know, to it? You know, my father was was actually a sucker for these kinds of wow presentations. My dad once bought a $1,600 vacuum cleaner because he was so wowed by the demonstration. And you know what often makes, you know, the biggest impact in these presentations? It's the before and after comparison. You know, like they'll take your old vacuum, they vacuum up the, the floor with your old vacuum cleaner, and then they, they take out their vacuum cleaner, they put a brand new, va- you know, bag on it, and then they vacuum the same area over it again. And uh, when you open the bag, voila, there's all kinds of dirt in there, even though you had just vacuumed with your own vacuum cleaner, right? And, and so what do you do, right? This is what my dad was thinking. Man, my vacuum cleaner's junk. You know, I need this new vacuum cleaner. How much is it? Only 1600 I couldn't believe when my dad bought a vacuum cleaner for $1,600. You know, um, some of you older members might remember... The infomercial. You guys remember the infomercial? It was a 30-minute commercial for a product that you can't buy in the regular stores. Um, I used to watch them, and I did buy stuff from them. In fact, I bought a car wax from an infomercial because they, they go to a junkyard, right? And the car's all jacked up and, you know, paint's all messed up. And they take the, the wax, this, this, this wax that you can only get through the infomercial, and then they, you know, they polish it all up, and then they show what it looked like before. And you go, oh, my goodness, right? And then you can even set it on fire, and it won't damage the, the paint and all, all that. I don't know if you guys remember that. And uh, um, you, when you see the before and after, you go, man, I got to call in and get that product, right? Which I, which I did, and, you know, use that wax. Well, you know, in a, in a similar way, Scripture, not to be confused with an infomercial, often shows us the before and after of conversion slash regeneration. So in other words, here's what you were like before you were saved by Christ, and here's what you are like after being saved. And so uh, a good place to start in all of this is Ephesians chapter 2. Um, and I want you to notice the emphasis on what you were before you were saved. Notice the first thing he mentions there. You were dead in the trespasses and sins uh, in which you once walked. This short little phrase describes the plight of fallen man wherever he is to be found, wherever you find him in the world today. He is spiritually dead. He is living in the realm of bondage to his sin. You know, the word death in scripture refers not just to the fact like, you know, this kind of death, though obviously there's that connotation, but the the, the main idea is separation from God. The fact that you are alienated from your creator. And before you came to know Jesus Christ, your lifestyle reflected that reality. 
In fact, there were three major influences that were fueling your choices that this passage uh, lays out for us. The world system as organized against God in verse 2. Satan, who is a supernatural enemy, also there in verse 2. And, of course, your flesh, your self-centered sin nature in verse 3. So, in other words, your life was being lived to the glory of self, dominated by the spirit of the age and the God of this world, right? This commitment expressed itself tangibly in fleshly living, thinking, and desiring, whether that be sexual immorality or drunkenness or gluttony, out-of-control anger, jealousy, or selfishness, you name it, all of the passage is talking about the kinds of things we were because we were dead, spiritually dead. This is, by the way, what we were and who we were by birth. And as a result, we were worthy to receive, in verse 3, God's holy wrath. Well, that's not the whole story, right? But God, verse 4, is but God. We've seen the before, and now Paul introduces the after. We've seen the hopelessly sinful condition of mankind when left to themselves, and now we see what happens when God sovereignly initiates his grace into our lives by calling us to himself through his Son and then saving us. You know, when scripture wants to interject how God dramatically changes lives, it emphasizes with that little phrase in verse 4, but God. As if to say, but God changes everything. You know, what motivated God to do this when we were dead in our trespasses and sins? Well, we don't have to guess because Paul declares four reasons right here in the text. Verse 4, his rich mercy. Also in verse 4, his great love. In verses 5, 7, and 8, his exceeding grace. And then verse 7, his kindness. Those are the four reasons that Paul gives for why he would do this for us. So the entire passage emphasizes the fact that God did what he did for us because of who he is. And not because there was something so attractive within us that was worth saving. So in other words, the reason we got saved had everything to do with how gracious, kind, and merciful God was towards us. And nothing to do with just how great we are. So look closely at, the change, at this change of life. We were formerly children of wrath in verse 3. But now we are objects of God's mercy and love in verse 4. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. But now, verse 5, we were made alive together with Christ. We used to be enslaved to Satan and by extension his demons and his world system. But now we are raised with Christ and seated with him in heaven. Which means, that's shorthand for saying, we're free from their hold, from the demonic stronghold. And now we have power over demonic forces, not because of ourselves and some great power that we have, but because we are united with Christ and his power and his authority. So this all translates into a changed life. And all of this took place through the grace and kindness of the Lord Jesus Christ, which means it was a free gift. It wasn't earned. It wasn't merited, right? He saved us as we reached out to him by faith. And that same grace that God used to save us became operative in our new life for him. Well, notice the connection in this passage that as God's new creation, described in verse 10 as his workmanship, his craftsmanship, if you will, we are now created in Christ Jesus for what? For good works. The entire scope and nature of our lives have been fully changed. And whereas we were once dead 
in our trespasses and sins, we're now living for Christ, and we're now doing good works. Wow, what a change. What a dramatic change in our life. This is the doctrine of regeneration slash conversion, and if you are a Christian, this isn't news to you because it describes your own life and what happened to you when you placed your faith in Jesus Christ. Well, let's turn, uh, let's turn to Titus chapter 3, and let's take a look at verses 3 to 7 there and see what we can glean from this passage. The Apostle Paul writes, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the, kind, when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Doesn't this passage sound very similar to Ephesians 2, which we just looked at? You know, it too describes our pre-conversion life and used language reminiscent of what we just read, but if you notice, it gives a little bit more detail. Now think about it in uh, Titus's context. He ministered to a Cretan culture. Um, now if you're unfamiliar with Cretan culture, they were known for their wickedness. And lest they feel some sort of temptation to feel morally superior to their Cretan culture, you know, hey, they're this, they're that, you know, they're horrible, but, you know, we're, you know, we're so morally superior to them. Paul reminds them, guess what? You were no different than they were before you got saved, right? Let's keep it in perspective here. In fact, let's face it, the longer you are a Christian, the easier it is to forget what you were like before you got saved, right? Um, you tend to forget that you were just like the, the wicked culture in which uh, that, that's all around you. But as you look at this list, you can easily remember how you were before you came to Christ, and you could probably see yourself right in any or all of these descriptions. We were foolish, right? We were rebellious, we were easily deceived. We were in bondage to evil. In fact, in bondage to our lusts for pleasure. And we were hateful to God and others. We were envious. We were wicked, right? We were all of these things. Again, this is what it looks like to be dead in our trespasses and sins. All of us were there, and all of us can give testimony to what it was like to think and live in this way until God got a hold of us. But notice the emphasis. Look in verse 3. Notice the emphasis is on what we once were in the past, not what we currently are, right? This is what we were. That lifestyle is a thing of the past because of one determining factor. Look at the next part. Well, wow, doesn't this sound familiar? But God. But God. Guess what? Second verse, same as the first. When the goodness, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. God, by his marvelous grace and mercy, he reached out and saved us because we couldn't save ourselves. Again, Paul specifies that it wasn't because of our works of righteousness that God saved us, and, and, and that should be obvious to us by now because we were, again, dead in our trespasses and sins. So it took God to initiate an act of mercy, to reach out to us and save us. But notice how he did it. By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. So Paul hones in 
on what God does when he saves a sinner and the major effect it has on his life when he receives the gospel by faith. Now, you know, we gave a a definition of regeneration at the outset, but as a reminder, it refers to the rebirth of a redeemed person. And this rebirth happens when, uh, you know, here, as, as is mentioned several times, through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, when you place your faith in Christ as your Lord and Savior. The Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, transforms your very nature, and then guess what? He takes up residence inside of you. That's in fulfillment of the new covenant passages that Jeremiah uh, talks about in Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel talks about in Ezekiel 36. And so these same people who are described in the most unflattering of terms in verse 3 are now transformed by the Spirit from the inside out. And this is why Paul instructs believers, look at verse 8 there, to devote themselves to what? To good works. That is to be their new MO in life, something that they couldn't do uh, when they were dead in their trespasses and sin. You know, this is the same truth, by the way, that Paul set forth in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. You guys all remember uh, that verse. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a, what? A new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. The point is that when God saves you, he changes you. He doesn't just rescue you from hell, though he certainly does that. He recreates your character your old way of life, your old order of existence that controlled you before is now a thing of the past. That's what he means by the old has passed away. Your regeneration, your new birth has changed everything about you. By the way, this is where the the concept of a testimony comes in. Your testimony is about how Christ radically changed your life, the before and the after details, as we see here in Scripture. This is why we ask about your testimony when we do your membership interview, right? To confirm that there has been a decisive break with your old way of life to embrace Jesus by faith. You know, if this aspect is missing or it's questionable, We need to probe further. For example, I I once did an interview where uh, I was asking for the interview, and the person said to me, I've been a Christian my whole life. Well, you know, I'm sure it's obvious to most of you that that's impossible, right? You're born dead in your trespasses and sin. How can you be a Christian your whole life, right? So we need to probe further, right, to see, do you really mean that, or is that just hyperbole, or, you know, we go further, Because we need to see, do you have an understanding that you can't just be born into it because your parents are Christian? There has to be a point where you go from death to life. We often hear, you know, uh, you know, something also along the lines of this. I don't. This is probably on eighty percent of the membership interviews that we do. You know, something like, I made a profession of faith when I was seven. I didn't really understand what I was doing. And uh, nothing really changed about my life. But, you know, years later, when I got into college, I started going to, you know, a fellowship group there. And uh, I, I started to understand the gospel. And so I rededicated my life to Christ and everything changed about me. And then I, I you know, I started to uh, desire all the right things, right? Well, you realize that in real life, that profession that you made at seven, that you didn't really know what you were doing probably was just you mimicking the words of your Sunday school teacher, and, it, and that's why there was no regeneration, conversion, change of life. But when you so-called rededicated your life to Christ in college, that's actually probably your salvation story, is when you went from death to life, and that accounts for why your life has changed, right? You were really born again. Uh, you were introduced to the gospel at a young age, but you were probably born again sometime later. Because just like night follows day, 
good works start to flow out of your life when you give your life to Christ. All right, we need to boogie, right? Let's get to point number two, God's grace in life. Uh, Let's flip backwards now, uh, a chapter to Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2, verses 11 to 14. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. You know, far too often we mistakenly think of God's grace, as as I mentioned earlier, as merely providing forgiveness of sins, Uh, But not much more than that, right? It gets us out of hell, it forgives us our sins, but then it just kind of peters out after that. And so as a result, we miss a major emphasis in Scripture that God's grace doesn't stop when he saves us. It also initiates the process of sanctification in a believer's life, working in his life to then become more like Christ. Now remember, as we talked about in Titus chapter 3, this is done in conjunction with the Holy Spirit, who is now indwelling us. So when a believer is saved, his nature is regenerated. The Spirit takes up residence within him. And as a a result, he will now respond positively to the working of God's grace in his life. Sanctification has both negative and positive elements to it, and Paul addresses both sides in this given passage. Uh, let, let me have you focus on the word training, at what God's, how God's grace trains us. The word training is used in the New Testament, both of training up a child and the training of discipline. And if you think about that, training up a child and training up in discipline, those are concepts that are very closely related. So first, Paul points out that God's grace trains up the believer to what? To renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. That word uh, renounce carries with it the idea of repudiating or saying no to something. That you, you have the greatest hatred and aversion towards something. Let me, let me point out also something that's significant in relation to the tense here that, that is used. You can either put all the emphasis in some of these Greek tenses like the aorist here. You can put all the emphasis on the beginning, what we call an ingressive aorist, or, uh, in terms of the action. Or you can put all the emphasis on the end of the action. And in this case, when you put all the action at the end, it's, it's what grammarians called a resultant aorist, which simply means you view an event in its entirety, right? You, you view it as a whole, but you focus particularly on the existing results. So in other words, this attitude of saying no to ungodliness and worldly passions It's not just something that is a one-off. You do it once and then it it never happens again. No, it's it's an ongoing, present reality because of what has happened in the past. Meaning, because of your salvation, salvation now has enacted this ongoing attitude of saying no to ungodliness. Secondly, Paul turns to the positive side of sanctification. God's grace not only teaches believers to say no to, to uh, wickedness, but also to say yes to holiness in the here and now. God's grace teaches the believer to live a self-controlled life, one in which he is now able, something he was never capable of doing before, to keep his passions and his desires under control. He, he, he also, God's grace meaning, teaches him to be upright, meaning he's able to conduct himself morally as is fitting for someone who has been saved by, by God's grace. 
But then lastly, God's grace not only teaches us to deny ungodliness, it goes a step further and teaches us to live godly in the present age. To have a proper reverential fear towards God. So taken together, as you look at this big picture, we can see the comprehensive effect that God's grace has upon a person's life. It affects him personally. He now can live self-controlled. His relationships with others is affected. He can live an upright life, a moral life that affects others, as well as his relationship to God. He can now live a godly life. Again, how is all of this possible for someone who was once deemed to be dead in their trespasses and sins? Well, it took God to change your nature and break the power of sin over your life and change the fundamental direction of your life. And that is what true biblical conversion looks like. Jump down to verse 14, where Paul says, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Paul highlights uh, two benefits for the believer that Christ's death secured for them. First, he redeemed us from all lawlessness. You know, that word redeem, one of the great Christian words, right? That word redeem refers to an act of deliverance due to the payment of a ransom. For example, it was used in Roman society in those days concerning a slave who bought back his freedom from his master. You know, if he could save up the previously agreed, uh, agreed upon price, then he could effectually buy back his freedom from his master. Well, in this case, in this example of the believer, it is Jesus Christ who pays the price in order to redeem or free uh, the, the, the sinner. And what is he freed from? Notice what it says here. Freed from all lawlessness, i.e. all of his sin, all of his defiance against God and his law, meaning we're set free now from the ruling power that our sin once had over us. But you know what? That's only half the picture. Paul goes on to mention that Christ purifies for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. You know, the concept of redemption has to do with breaking the controlling power of sin in the believer's life. Purification, on the other hand, has to do with removing the defilement of sin. And in so doing, believers are then qualified to be Christ's own special people who are zealous for good works. Notice again the emphasis upon the transforming nature of God's saving grace. Once a person has been saved by God's grace, he not only performs good, good works, which we've already talked about, but look, look here, he is zealous for them, meaning he is eager and excited to bear fruit in his life. It's not something that feels forced or imposed upon him, like, you know, unwillingly obligated to do them. No, he's zealous to, to do good works. When God saves a person from sin and damnation, it impacts that person's life, causing him to respond to God by then living a life of gratitude towards him. He doesn't serve the Lord out of a legalistic obedience, though we can fall into that from time to time, but really from a willing heart, right? A willing heart that understands what he's been saved from. So the person who says that he's been saved by God's grace, but has no evidence of a changed life, to accompany that profession, you're just kidding yourself. You're fooling yourself. This inner motivation for doing what is good in God's sight 
is one of the main evidences that he belongs to God, right? Well, let's get to the, to the home stretch here. Turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6, very important passage there. A couple of, uh, I'm going to walk you up to verses 16 to 19, but notice how Paul starts. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? This is a potential objection that is brought to the doctrine of grace. Hey, you know, since grace is so wonderful, forgives all of our sins, then, uh, you know, uh, why don't we just continue in sin so that God's grace can abound as much as our sin abounds and we can exalt God's grace? Is that really what, what all this leads to? By no means, verse 2. How can we who died to sin uh, still live in it? No way. That, that doesn't lead us to, to conclude that. That's an abuse of God's grace, right? We're not going to live like that. In fact, we've died to sin, right? We, we don't live for sin anymore. We've died to it because of our relationship with Christ. Uh, do you not know, verse 3, that all of us who were baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. No, we are, we're new people. We're changed. We're transformed. We don't live like that anymore. Christ's death is a death to sin, and now his resurrection has affected us in that we live a resurrection kind of life. Well, he continues this argument. We don't have time to walk up all the way, but let's just jump to where we need to go in verse 16 to 19. He goes on to say, but that's in the background. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations, for just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification." You know, God's grace, properly understood, doesn't motivate us to sin more, um, just the opposite. It motivates us to sin less. When you understand just how marvelous God's grace is, you don't want to take advantage of it. You want to appreciate it, and the way you appreciate it is by obeying Christ. We recognize that although we were once slaves to our sin— in bondage to our sin and incapable of freeing ourselves from our old master— God came along and he broke the power that sin had over us. He broke the chains that held us and set us free to serve a new master. But notice the terminology that Paul uses. You didn't stop becoming a slave once God saved you. No, you simply changed masters. We who were once slaves of sin have now become slaves of righteousness and are commanded to give you know, our all to now serve God's cause. Again, this is what real conversion slash regeneration looks like in the life of a believer. Not some Christians, not most Christians, but all Christians. There is a change of masters that takes place. All right, conclusion. So as we, as we conclude not only our time here this morning, but our series on, uh, you know, marks of a healthy church, as we kind of wrap up this whole thing uh, and understand uh, why we focused on things like the gospel last week and why change this week and why church membership, why we focused, uh, you know, on all of these aspects uh, you can kind of see how they all meld together, church leadership as well, uh, that led this off. Salvation is more than just a subjective experience. It, it is a life-transforming event where you are now washed clean from your sins and given newness of life. Biblically speaking, there isn't such a thing 
as a person getting saved by Christ whose life doesn't fundamentally change. There are a lot of Christians who think so. You could just make a profession of faith and nothing about your life will ever change, but they're still saved. And people who think like this, as you, as you think about it, as we started this, they're arguing for a salvation past. They're also arguing for a salvation future where they're going to you know, spend forever you know, with, with the Lord in heaven. But there's no place for salvation present. Salvation present has gotten cut out of the deal here, right? But as I've already mentioned, salvation is more than just fire insurance. It's being born again to live for the Lord Jesus Christ, a life that is now pleasing to him. Good works will now characterize that believer's life as opposed to the varieties of sin that used to define him. We take seriously the concept of a fully redeemed church membership here at IBC, and that means that we will do our very best as a leadership to ensure that everyone really does know the Lord who comes into the membership of our church. This preserves the testimony of the church and keeps from a little leaven leavening the whole lump, as Paul talked about in 1 Corinthians 5, 6. And for those who really aren't believers who visit our church or who attend our church for a period of time or whatever, we want to give them the chance to become a Christian and to join our member legit, right? As opposed to just letting you pretend you are and then letting you into the membership and then one day facing your maker with, with an empty membership in your hand. So if you aren't a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, I would invite you to repent and give your life to Christ and you will then experience all of the realities that we talked about here this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks as we wrap up our series and our, and our message here today uh, on true biblical conversion and regeneration. We pray, Lord, that it would be an encouragement to think about what we were saved from and what we are saved to. And we pray, Lord, for those that might be sitting here who don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, that they would ponder these things and you would convict their heart of sin and bring them to faith in yourself. And we could celebrate their salvation. Give you thanks for all of it in Jesus' name.